0: It's a joy to be with you again. Um, I have enjoyed both of those times being here, and I typically, like the years in between, I have not been able to come. I've been traveling somewhere else, but glad I could be back with you today. Actually, I was asked to make an announcement. I'm not really sure why I'm making it, but, you know, our theme is adorned with strength, right? So we're talking about being a strong woman this weekend. And we want to give you the full package Okay, hey, we we want it to be well balanced, so we want to give you the word and what it means. But you know, something that comes to your mind when you think about being a strong woman is physical strength, right? And so, I've been asked to announce that about. I think we're going to do it at midnight tonight down by the lake, and we're going to have um, <laughs> our very own bodybuilder is going to you know lead a class on weightlifting. So. I think I just need to leave that there for a few minutes. Look at those thighs. Yes, you're welcome, Sandy. We are talking this weekend about being adorned with strength. When I was 19 years old and a junior in college, I went on my first date with Mr. Godly Gorgeous. I was so excited that such a combination existed. Because prior to that, it seemed like you had to sacrifice one or the other. So I went on my first date with Mr. Godly Gorgeous and I was enamored from the beginning but I went back and said to my friend you know he's the sharpest guy I've ever met but I think he's a little too quiet and serious for me I just imagined myself with a little different personality he asked me out twice in the following week and I went out with him twice And after that second one, that second week, which was my third date with him, I went back to my room to brush my teeth and grab my books. I went to Bob Jones and dating means you go eat lunch together, breakfast together, you know, just keep that in mind. So I went, we went to the dining common, not Benson or Jensen. And (laughs) I went back to my room to brush my teeth and grab my books for class. And I started crying and my roommate said, what is wrong with you? And I said, I'm going to marry that guy if he'll have me. But about the same time, as I'm saying this, he is approached by a mutual friend of ours who said to him, man, be careful. She is a strong woman. And I'm not sure to this day what prompted Dave to say that. Maybe it was um, he perceived that I was driven and determined or outgoing and direct, maybe stubborn and manipulative, (laughs) or it was probably my athleticism. Maybe he thought I was confident and independent, or maybe he thought I was faith-filled and passionate. I don't really know what he thought, but when we say that term or we hear that term, it can mean pretty much any of those things, right? Now, if we're all going to be honest, the fact that Dave was giving a warning to Dean, I think Dave was concerned that Dean could not handle me. So I think we could probably rule out all those positive sounding ones. (laughs) But thankfully, Mr. Gorgeous Godley, otherwise known as Dean Taylor, did not heed the warning and continued to pursue me. And a year and a half later, he married the strong woman. I would like to give a disclaimer as we get started, and that disclaimer is that I did not choose this theme. That might be partly why. Um, (laughs) I agreed to it, but I didn't choose it. I'm not sure that I would have volunteered for this theme because it's kind of complex. It's broad. It can mean a lot of different things. I was specifically asked to talk about, you know, what does it mean biblically to be a feminist? And I was like, I'm not sure we can put those two together. (laughs) But the question was, when can I speak up and when am I supposed to be quiet? And so that's kind of what I was asked to address. And it can be complex and honestly, it can be a little bit controversial. You know, when I, when I speak at a conference and I talk about Jesus, you know, Jesus loves you and who you are in Christ and, and all the things that God is, we all get warm and fuzzy and we're thankful and we're encouraged. But when you talk about something like this, some of you are going to be going... <laughs> so I might not be your favorite person after this, but I think this is a needed topic. I think it's a needed topic because so often... The world's concept and perspective of a strong woman encroaches into our thinking and our attitudes and our behaviors, our perspective. And sometimes we don't even know it. But we end up adopting kind of the mentality that the world has often when it comes to what is a woman supposed to be? What is she supposed to be like? So as we get started tonight, I'm going to ask you to join me in just quieting our hearts before God and asking God to make us receptive to not what Faith Taylor thinks, but what the Word of God says, even if it's not comfortable, even if it rubs you the wrong way, even if it steps on your toes and you're curling your feet under your chair. I've been doing that a lot lately. So will you just join me and let's just ask God to give us that openness to learn what he has for us and to be receptive to what his word says. God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel message that is in your word, that that is our foundation for all of life. We thank you that you have given us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. Lord, sometimes some things in your word are, are hard. They're uncomfortable. They're not really what we want to hear. And I pray, God, that in this session, in the sessions tomorrow, the workshops, I pray that we would just be open-hearted before you, that we would yield our will and our desires, our habits, our practices, And be receptive to your word. In your name, amen. The world has a very specific message about what it means to be a strong woman. And we're not really going to talk about physical strength so much. Um, We're thinking more along the lines of, of a woman's identity. And the world has a very strong message about that. And so does God's word. And my goal in this first session together is to draw a comparison for us in order that you and I can understand the difference. Again, as I said, sometimes the world's mentality slips into our thinking and we're not even sure what's wrong with something. So I want us to understand the difference. And then I also would like us to try to discern. Which of these ideologies is shaping our actions and our attitudes? If you are in your 50s or 60s or beyond, I don't want to ask you to raise your hand or anything. Um, you probably remember a time when the role of a woman was nothing like it is today. And when it wasn't that different from what the Bible says. If you remember this program, Father Knows Best, which ran in the late 50s, it was a portrayal of American family values. And you had Jim Anderson, who was an insurance salesman, very successful breadwinner. And you have his lovely wife, Margaret, who was the stay-at-home mom, took care of the kids and the household while he was at work. Um, This domestic, submissive, serving woman mentality is also seen in Leave It to Beaver from the same era with June Cleaver as the matriarch. If you grew up in this era, or like me, you grew up watching the reruns of it, um, you you may have grown up kind of accepting this as the societal norm. But I'm going to speak to you right now, you who are 50 and older who remember these shows. Your perception of submission and a homemaker is very different from the teens and the 20s and the 30s and the 40s who are here. And that's because of the message of our society. And this this post-war mentality The men came home from the war. The women came home from work. Um, The families moved to the suburbs and had the little house with the white picket fence. And it was actually a status symbol for for the wife and mother to be able to stay home. And because of the results, the advancements of the Industrial Revolution, appliances got better and better and faster and faster. And the very fulfilling work that the pioneer women had and probably found very fulfilling their role because they were sustaining life for these people and they worked at it from sunup to sundown. All of that changed. And housework could be done much more quickly, much more efficiently. And corporations, businesses began advertisements for wives because they realized they are the buyers and they would try to present to them this little ideal of the stay-at-home mother so that she would go and buy the newer vacuum cleaner, the newer appliance. And women began to get bored and restless. Frankly, they started to to measure up to all the advertisements. They started vacuuming their houses daily. They started washing the sheets twice a week. My mother-in-law, bless her heart, ironed the sheets. And I'm like, now tell me why one would do that. She also, when she ironed her husband's shirts, which bled into ironing my husband's shirts when she came to visit, which mortified me, I can iron a shirt in three minutes flat. Right? I use the square end of the ironing board, and I stick the, square, the, the one front half, the other front half, the whole back, turn it the other way, we're done. My dear mother-in-law irons it completely inside out. And then she irons it completely right side out. And I think that's leftover from this. So women got restless and bored and they started filling their time with bridge clubs and luncheons. And what happened then was in 1963, Betty Friedan's book came out, The Feminine Mystique. And in this book, she promoted a message that women were being shackled to their merely biological role, and that they were not able to find fulfillment or higher meaning in life, something more challenging, because they were shackled to bearing children and staying at home. She states in this book that women were being dehumanized, that they lacked individual identity and purpose, and that they needed to have their human potential unleashed. Her solution to this was to encourage women to leave the home, get an education, and continue meaning, contributing. Let's mal- try on that one, now, okay? Her solution was that women leave home, get an education, and begin contributing meaningfully to society. There's an implication there, right? that prior to this, you were not. The book sold like wildfire. There were three million copies sold in three years. And women began to follow that advice. So this is the beginning of the modern-day women's movement. And you saw this change beginning to take place from the 50s TV shows. Now you have Lucille Ball who's home but doesn't want to be, right? And she's always pushing the envelope on, on submitting herself to her husband. Um, this is also about the time that, <clears throat> oh, let me say this. Oh, I think I have something out of order. Let's go to this. This is the time around 1968, so the late 60s, when Philip Morris launched the first cigarette brand marketed specifically for women. And he promoted it using a women's liberation phrase. What was it? Those of you under 40 don't know this, do you? (laughs) Bless your hearts. The saying was, you've come a long way, baby. And he ran these advertisements in magazines from 1968 up until the 90s. And what they looked like is... In the background, I don't know how well you can see that picture, but you have an oppressed and repressed woman hiding somewhere so she could smoke because she was not allowed to smoke. So you have these black and white photographs in the background, and then in the front you have this bold, beautiful woman who's on the cutting edge of style, and she's openly smoking. Interesting thing about this is this is promoting like women's lib, as we used to call it, feminism. But if, if, we, if men and women are the same, why did they need their own cigarette? <laughs> it was a skinnier one for her dainty hand. That makes no sense. <laughs> if we're talking about equality. Right? Okay, but there's an example. Here's another one. So then, come on, work with me here. Here's another one. This is like 1990s. So you see the woman in the background and she's in her black and white. and She's haggard, man. She is carrying the laundry tubs. (laughs) Is she smoking? I think she probably is because they are in all of them. It must be hiding in her little apron. And then you have the new emboldened woman. This is um, about the same time that women began to fight for legalism of abortion. They were, that's what this previous picture was. I got it out of order there. It's about the same time. Because like this magazine illustrates, there's, there had been a movement from women being the helper and the completer to women being assertive and demanding equality. So, if you fast forward a few years to about the 90s or early 2000s, who knows what this is? Anybody know what this is called? I actually forgot. It's the something grr movement, and it was when women tried to push their way into the punk rock movement, and it was all about their sexual freedom, and yeah, sorry about that. Uh, (laughs) But basically... um, Women were told in this, in this era, this is what we call like third wave feminism, they were told to forget restraint and flaunt their sexuality freely. They began to fight for individuality and diversity. This isn't this long ago. This is 25, 20 years ago. And the message was do what you want and be what you want. Don't worry about anyone else. Anything goes and, and a quote that I've read is, they were given the freedom to behave badly. And that was at their right. This was followed by the fourth wave, which began in about 2012 and continues till now. And the theme or the focus of the fourth wave, some people say, we don't know what they're fighting for. Because it's kind of muddy and murky. But basically, basically it still has to do with the empowerment of women. Um, It includes a focus on gender norms, overcoming those. Um, It includes the queer theory, the sex positivity, the body positivity. It's basically anything goes. And because this is my body, I can use it for prostitution if I want to. That's the message of the fourth wave. The body positivity is be proud of your body, no matter what size you are, and, and show it off. You've probably seen the results of this emphasis. That's kind of a quick overview of the waves of feminism. And if we look at feminism, we can acknowledge that they have fought some needed fights. We started with modern day. We didn't talk about first wave. That would be the late 1700s, 1800s, when, when women were fighting for the right to vote, um, the right to have an education. They were fighting for temperance to protect their families from the father's alcoholism. They were fighting for the right for women to receive an education. So there are some things that... A younger person might say, I agree with that, so maybe I'm a feminist. But may I say that although there were a few things that they fought for, you can see the the digression, the progression of what they stand for and what they are fighting for. And I, I would suggest that even the things that needed to be changed, there was typically a wrong motivation very self-centered, very self-advancing, a wrong methodology. They were demanding, they were rioting. They used violence and demands. And also a wrong source of authority. Their source of authority was themselves. Um was freedom from any constraints this is a big part of the progression of feminism. So this is the world's strong woman. I would summarize her this way, very broadly. She demands equality. You know, in early third wave, even late second wave, there was a fight for equal opportunity. I can see that. Okay, there was, there was the fight for this job should be available to a woman, but that has, that has developed and progressed into what we call equal outcome. In other words, they're demanding that just as many women be corporate level in this as men. So it's, it's a methodology of making demands rather than earning respect, rather than earning a, a position using their skills. As far as the demanding equality, um, you see this in, in the homes of our younger people. And some of ours, um, even even Christians, where we have this mentality of equality as far as responsibilities in the home. And I want to be careful. I don't have time to exhaust this. I'm not saying that a, a husband shouldn't or couldn't be helpful. But I believe that nowhere in Scripture is the man told to take care of the home. The woman is told to be the keeper of the home. So if you have happy Helperton husband, that's what I call my son-in-law. He's like the most helpful dude you'd ever want to know. I've called him happy Helperton since the first time he came to my house and washed the the Sunday dinner dishes. I was like, you go. Um, (laughs) But if you have a happy Helperton, praise the Lord. Or sometimes there's something going on in your life where you're in a phase of life where the husband does more. But but what I what I want to encourage you about is this 50-50 mentality about taking care of the home and taking care of the children. You can't really find that. But she demands this type of equality. And as was mentioned earlier in uh, Carrie's workshop, what they mean by equality is different than what we're going to talk about Me equality meaning in a minute when we get into god's design what they mean is sameness no no distinctions so she is she demands equality she is autonomous we might use the word independent but i think sometimes we can use the word independent in a good sense you know that my 5 year old granddaughter is independent enough that she was comfortable going to a new school last week autonomous is a stronger idea of it's like Self-governing. Resist any other type of authority. Would say that the world's view of a strong woman is also that she lives for herself. All through the, the waves of feminism, we see that the woman is supposed to pursue her own dreams. She's supposed to pursue her own happiness no matter the cost. Even if it is at the expense of the people she says that she loves. She is to pursue her own happiness. She allows no one to stand in her way, not even her children or husband, if she chooses to have them. Finally, I would say that she is obsessed with self-expression. And by that, I'm talking about the more recent emphasis on being true to yourself. Have you heard this terminology, and and the philosophy here is that there is no real truth except as defined by self. We call that relativism. So everybody creates and develops her own truth, and yet in that, they seek and demand affirmation of that expression, whether they're being trans or whatever they're being. This, this whole movement, the world's strong woman, has, has at least beginning at the 60s, and I would say earlier on, back in the 17 and 1800s, it has been over time dismantling God's structure, God's design for woman. So what do we do? What are you and I going to do? How are we going to protect our own minds and our own thinking? And how are we going to protect the young women coming behind us? We have to, as we should in all areas of life, be holding up the world's message to the truth of Scripture. This verse has been on my mind, or this passage has been on my mind recently. Partly because it emphasizes the source of our strength, but also because it emphasizes truth. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I think sometimes when we're in these conversations, we think we're fighting against this person. And we overlook that this is the devil's system right now for destroying God's design. And in this passage, I want to draw attention especially to verse 14. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. It's like my sash and my belt that holds me all together is truth. And that's how we have to approach this ideology we have to be saying, what is God's truth about this? So on your handout, which is completely blank, did you like that? Um, it is a comparison between two strong women. There's one. There's the world's strong woman. Now let's consider together, what is God's strong woman? I'd like to interject a little note right here. For those of you who are here who are not married, I understand that sometimes you go to women's stuff and they talk about marriage and they talk about parenting. And I can honestly say that I have never in 30 years of speaking, spoken about marriage in a keynote session. I think it's one of the reasons I, I wrestled with this message Because I understand that if you're sitting there, that you are groaning and sighing. But may I ask you to stay with me. Because what we're going to talk about tonight is much broader than marriage. May I say it this way, that when we go and look at God's design, God's design is presented and introduced in the context of marriage. But God's design is not limited to marriage. And I hope that will encourage you. I hope you, if you are not married, perhaps you, you are looking forward to marriage, or perhaps you have been married in the past, and this is not going to be your favorite thing. But may I say to you that, that this, God's design is for all women. And we will talk about how and why as we go tonight. So let's consider God's design for women, and we are going to go to, guess where? Really hard to figure out. Genesis. Go all the way back to Genesis. Sometimes we like to start with all the passages in the New Testament that talk about submission. You like how I say that? Submission. But we like, you know, we think of Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, um, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3, but that's not where it started. Um, So let's go all the way back to the beginning and let's look at God's design. These will probably be some familiar verses, but I think there might be a few nuggets that make you say, hmm, that's what I'm hoping for. You you can say it out loud if you want to encourage me. Say, hmm, okay, I haven't told you the thing yet. (laughs) Getting ahead of the game here. All right, Genesis chapter 1. Let's look at verses 26 through 27. We'll start there. Genesis 1, verse 26. Kind of cool sounding. All right. So look at these verses again. What's the first thing we see about God's design? How were we made? In God's image. And I like how the God-inspired word is very careful to make sure that we catch that that's talking about both men and women. Do you see how the little repetition there? Verse 27, he created man in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. So, first point I want to make is that God created man and woman equal in nature and in primary function. So when we say created equal in nature, that's the created in his image. Every human being, male and female, is created in the image of God. You bear the image of your creator. You are an image bearer. You were designed to reflect God's image. The way I understand it there are certain aspects that are typical of women that reflect specific aspects of the nature of God. For example, life giver, nurturer. And there are specific aspects of men that reflect other characteristics of the nature of God. The provider, the protector. So we are all created in the image of God. May I say that because we believe in God's design, and most of you know that we're headed to talking about submission, that does not mean that we believe in the oppression, the abuse, the discrimination of women. And this is why. Why? Because every one of you bears the image of God. That is your value. That is your worth. And in that way, you are perfectly equal to man. In your nature, you are equal. The second way I say there that he created us equal is in primary function. Look with me again at verse 26. The second clause, let them have dominion. Who is them? The man and the woman. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And then look down at verse 28. Then God blessed them and said to them, who's the them? Adam and Eve. This is repetitious, uh, rhetorical. Hang with me. What did he say to them? To both of them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So God gave Adam and Eve the same primary job to fill the earth, to multiply, to multiply, and to subdue it, to, to take care of it, to control it, to garden it, to take care of the animals. And so there is equality there. But next, let's see that he created them unequal in specific roles. And this is where we part ways with the world's model. Because we're going to agree on equality, but they mean something different. They mean sameness. And they would not agree with this. But this is what the Bible says. If we look at... The actual detailed creation account. Look in chapter 2. Who did God create first? Adam. Have you ever wondered why? Isn't it interesting that every other species, God created them together? He created them like in twos. Male, female, male, female. And suddenly when he gets to man the climax of his creation of life. He creates just the man. I believe that that was a picture of his creation order. It was a picture of his structure that he was going to introduce. Same thing goes for how they were created. Okay, God created everything out of nothing. Then he creates man out of the dust of the earth. And then why didn't he just bend down one more time and make woman? No, it's another picture. He he made her out of him. So again, it's a picture of God's structure. We find that Adam is created to be the head. We see that in the creation order. We also find this stated in the curse after the fall, which we'll look at in a minute. And then we find it in the New Testament in Ephesians 5, 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. So God made that structure, I think, to make the family life work. But he also made it as a picture of the church and and its relationship to Jesus Christ. We also find the man presented as the head in 1 Corinthians 11.3. The head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So Adam is the head, and Eve gets to be what? The helper. Look in chapter 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Or your Bible might say suitable or fit or something like that. Now, let's be real honest. How do you feel about being a helper? When you're in the flesh and you're not spirit-filled. <laughs> you know, think about, think about the toddler who gets to help mommy make cookies or gets to help daddy pull weeds, and they're delighted because they're getting this personal attention and they're getting to help. But they outgrow that pretty soon. And then what do they start saying? Me do it. They want to be chief. They want to call the shots, and they want to take the credit. And that's how we are. We don't, um, our flesh doesn't gravitate to an assistant role. May I encourage you about this? Something that I think is fascinating. Although we naturally might feel like the term helper implies inferiority, that it's lesser than, that it's less significant, that's not God's design. In a book called Biblical Femininity, one author explains that the Hebrew word for helper has taken on a negative connotation through the centuries that it did not have originally. She says that originally it was a very robust word. The Hebrew word is ezer. Will you say it with me? Ezer. I don't know Hebrew. But I like sometimes to give us a word that we can kind of hang on to. So just remember, think about Ezariah, Ezer. All right? That's the Hebrew word for this helper that's talked about. And it's used 80 times in the Old Testament. And its root form typically means military assistance. I'm going to let that swirl around in your head for a minute. Military assistance. Does that strike you as a weak position? Here's an example of where that word is used. In Ezekiel 30 verse 8, Ezekiel is prophesying about the destruction of Egypt. And he says there that all her helpers will be destroyed. Same word. Military assistance. So this Hebrew word, actually suggest an inherent strength. It refers to an essential counterpart, an indispensable companion or corresponding strength. Being an Ezer is not merely folding down the comforter of the bed and lighting the fire when he gets home from work and bringing him his slippers which is what the 1955 Housekeeping Monthly presented of How to Be a Good Wife. It's a fascinating article. You ought to look it up. It's still there. But it's all of these things, these soft, warm, fuzzy things that border on the ridiculous. Because he could very easily do that for himself. And I'm not saying don't do the little things. But I'm saying in the 50s, during this post-war season, the role of the woman and the role of the wife was trivialized. Which resulted in the response to Betty Friedan's book and the explosion of the feminist movement. In reality, this Ezra is the one who through her gifts and through her skill set and through her resources Enables and helps her husband accomplish something he would have been incapable of without her. Just like military assistance would have helped an army win a battle. Does that kind of give you a little different view of God saying that you're the helper? There's, a, there's another important piece. A few of you here have been in my feminism class. What is the other piece that should encourage me about being a helper? A little bit louder. Yes. Who was the Holy Spirit? Oh. I'm a dork. Who was the helper in the Bible? No bonus points for you. <laughs> John 15, 26 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Holy Spirit there is named the Helper. We find this again in John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come. Who else is a helper in Scripture? God Himself. Think about these verses. Psalm 54, 4. Behold, God is my helper. Hebrews 13, 6. So that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Psalm one, eighteen, seven. The Lord is on my side as my helper. So the fact that the Holy Spirit is the helper and the fact that God Himself Says he is our helper. Show us shows us that being this Ezer is a way that I mirror the image of God. So I mirror His image through being a life giver. I mirror I mirror His image through being a nurturer. I mirror His image through being the Ezer, the helpful. And I think that should encourage our hearts. Singles, may I talk to you? You might be saying, well, I'm not an Ezra, I guess. May I, may I suggest that reflecting the image of God through being an Ezer is not about what you do. It's about who you are. It's not a, a role, it's an identity, it's a character, quality. And that should encourage us. So, what do you do with it? Well, you're not going to be an Ezra for a man right now, today. But this, this principle, this opportunity to mirror God's image extends beyond marriage and can be used in community specifically your church. You have the opportunity to be the ezer, the helper in your church body. This is what 1 Corinthians 7.34 is talking about when it says that the unmarried woman can care just for the things of the Lord. She is unencumbered by the care of her husband and her family. And it is a very special calling to be called to be God's ezer and the ezer for the body of Christ. And so if you, if you are not married and this is discouraging to you, would you consider that? If you are married, it shows you that your ezer nature should not just be demonstrated in your family and in your home but should be demonstrated in your church life. So how did Eve respond to God's design? In Genesis chapter 3, we have the account of the fall. You know the story. Um, Satan comes to her in the form of a serpent and he tempts her and you you find the progression of her thought first she questions god's word and then she exaggerates god's word and then she defied god's word and she yielded to the appetites of her flesh there's a direct correlation or parallel between what she did and what 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 appealed to her and 1 john 2:15 about what the love of the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That was the progression that she went through. And in making this decision to defy God's command, she also defied God, God, her God-given headship over her. I got way behind here. Sorry. I forget these things. She rejected God's command and she defied the God-given headship, meaning Adam. She made these decisions, this decision, independently of him. There's no record of her consulting him. There's no record of him taking the lead either. But she functioned independently of him. What was the result? Genesis 3, 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. I took... Eve's name in vain a few times in labor. <laughs> so we have pain and childbirth, but then there's another piece of this. Look at the second part of verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for him. What? Some scholars will say that this is talking about her sexual desire being for him, and that makes no sense to me. Because that would mean she, she didn't have a thing for him before that. <laughs> So let's rule that out. So what could it mean? Look with me over at chapter 4, verse 7. One chapter over. Cain has killed Abel. God is confronting Cain. And God says to him in verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin lies at the door. Listen to this part. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. What is the it? Sin. God is saying to Cain, sin is going to desire you. It's going to desire to control you. It's going to desire to rule over you, but you should rule over it. You should say no to your flesh. That is the same construction as we have over here. So when it says that her desire would be for her husband, what does it mean? It means that she is going to want to control him. But that he should have the rule over her because that is God's design. So she would desire to control him, but would be ruled by him. You know, I think this verse should be an encouragement to us. And I'll tell you why it is to me. It helps me anticipate my natural resistance to my husband's leadership. You know, you get married and you think he's so wonderful and you're just going to live happily ever after. We had our first fight on our honeymoon. And you know what it was about? I didn't want to submit to something he wanted me to do. And for me to understand that this is part of the curse that I am going to resist his leadership and his authority helps me anticipate it. It also helps me when I feel that inside, like you are making the wrong decision. And I might want to be self-righteous or proud. It makes me take a step back and say, oh, wait a minute. This is part of the curse. This is sin in my heart that I'm feeling this way. So that can be an encouragement. I want to point out one more thing. Interestingly, in the narrative of Eve, we see both the world's strong woman and God's. What do I mean by that? We see God's in the design, God's plan. We see the world's strong woman in Eve's behavior. What do I mean by that? She was independent, she was autonomous. She tried to remove herself from his authority. She was deceived by Satan. As we are deceived when we think that coming out from under that authority is freedom. I love the song that we sang about freedom. Because really that's what feminism is about. It's about people seeking freedom somewhere other than where God gives it. Where God offers it. Eve was also self-serving. She was controlled by her fleshly desires and she was domineering. The Bible says that after she ate it, she gave it to him. She took the lead. She took the headship. I had three questions to end with. I think I'm out of time. Okay, thanks. (laughs) I'll make it it brief, okay? (laughs) This is not how I typically end the message, but I I anticipate, because I've talked to enough wives, and I know my own heart and mind, the questions that this raises for us. Okay, and the first one is from a single. How does this apply to me? Does this mean I don't have a purpose? Um, And we've already talked about this a little bit. So the good news is you don't have to submit to a husband. Aren't you thankful for Colossians 3 that it's your own husband you have to submit to? I do not have to submit to yours. But as a single, even though you're not married, you can still have a heart that resists God's design. You can think, that's dumb. I'm just as smart as he is. Or if I were married, I would be smarter than he is, you know, whatever you think. And so I think there's a challenge here to surrender to God's design. Even if you don't right now have the personal responsibility to be living that out in marriage, you have the opportunity and the responsibility to live it out in your church. First Timothy 2, 11 through 14 describes that. Carrie handled that so well in the workshop. But that's where God puts a boundary on the woman's role in the church That she's not to teach men or exercise authority over them. And then he goes on to give the reason. Because Adam was created first. And then because the woman was the one who was deceived when she removed herself from his headship. Another question Do I do I really have to submit this whole submission thing? And we live in a day when people try to explain this away. People will say it was a cultural thing, it's not binding. Um, People do that with 1 Timothy. They say that was just because those women in that church were boisterous and uncontrollable and they were causing problems. Well, if that were the case, then I don't think Paul would have looked back to creation when he gave a reason for it, right? He would have talked about, because those women are trouble, and that's not what he did. Um, So do you have to submit? Yes. Galatians 3.28 is a verse that What we call egalitarians try to use to explain away the instructions to submit. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the egalitarian who thinks that there are no role distinctions will look at this and will say, This teaches us that the work that Jesus Christ did at Calvary obliterates the distinction of roles that God established. And they try to look back at the fall as when that began. And they say, well, Christ has done away with the results of that sin. Which is not great logic. Because there's still sickness and death in every other part of the... And, and you know, weeds in my garden, Right? But that's what they try to do to explain it away. And we find this this instruction repeated multiple times. So when I'm interpreting scripture, I can't take one passage and say, this supersedes all the rest and throw them out. I have to figure out how they all work together. And and this is not talking about marriage, the structure of, of marriage or the structure of leadership in the church. This is talking about all of our standing of righteousness before God because of what Jesus Christ did. This is talking about your salvation, your justification. So yes, this still applies today. The third question that is probably the hot topic, and maybe we'll come back to it a little bit tomorrow, do I have to be quiet? (laughs) Hmm. Should I sit down? Um, Sometimes we look at 1 Peter 3. I, I spoke on 1 Peter 3 in a session in 2019. I'm sure you still remember it. Um, I love that passage. It talks about the role of the wife, and it looks back at the example of Jesus Christ's suffering, and then it looks at Sarah's example, and it's just beautiful to unpack. But a part of that passage is this idea of the, the gentle and the quiet spirit. I mean, 1 Peter 3 this is right after God tells, or Peter, God through Peter, instructs wives to follow the example of Jesus Christ that was given in chapter 2, who, who when Jesus suffered, um, he did not sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. And when he, he, when he um, suffered, he did not make threats. But what did he do instead? He committed himself to him who judges righteously. You get to chapter 3. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may without a word be won by the lifestyle of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversa- conversation coupled with fear. And then you get into this section in verses 3 and 4. Don't let your adorning, the putting it in order, or I think more specifically in this passage, the making it beautiful, Don't let your adorning be merely the outward, arranging the hair, wearing of gold. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Gentle here means calm and pleasant. It's used, it was used as a term that meant to tame an animal. (laughs) And you know, I, I chuckle because it's the idea of, Power harnessed by love. Power harnessed by love. It's not that you are supposed to be weak and not have an opinion and not have a thought in your head or be a doormat. But you're to have this spirit that is calm and pleasant. And part of that meaning is that you don't become angry or bitter at what is unpleasant. In the context of this, we're talking about a husband who's who's not obeying the Word, so he's probably mistreating his wife. What's her natural reaction going to be? To be angry, to be bitter, to be unpleasant. But my focus is to be on allowing the Spirit of God to put in me this, this pleasantness that is not easy, easily riled. The quiet part. Carrie referred to this in her workshop and defined it as Tranquil. Another word for that would be peaceable or undisturbed. That's that's the spirit I'm to be cultivating. It does not mean that I don't speak. It does not mean that I don't express concern about a decision that my authority is making. It does not mean that I don't ask questions. It means that I have this spirit, this manner in which I would do that if I need to do that. One way to uh, make a distinction between these two words that I like is gentle is not creating the disturbance. And quiet is being tranquil when the disturbance is being caused by somebody else. Does that make sense? It's a neat way to think about this. So, bottom line is this is not talking about personality. Some of you are outgoing and bubbly and not shy and quiet like me. And you, get, you have a question about that. You want to say, does this mean I'm supposed to? i tell you what I think. I think when I grow up, God, let me be like my pastor's wife, Carrie Augsburger. So sweet. So calm. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> it's not changing my personality. It's not you changing your personality. Now, if you're boisterous, it may be developing a spirit that there's that spirit controlled or it may be evaluating what is my heart attitude and my motivation behind that am i seeking attention in the way that i conduct myself but this does not mean that you don't have a voice what does this look like in my in my marriage i believe that a healthy marriage where he is he is loving as christ loved the church and i am being submissive and staying in rank staying in my lane there can be some great communication and I have a wonderful husband who, who listens to my concerns and wants to hear them. But, but if there's contention, the way I, the way I think about it is I need to bring this up to my husband as I would to a boss. How would you go in and talk to your boss about a concern you had, something that was going on, a decision the company was making? You would probably, even if you felt intensely about it, You would do it in a respectful way. We are to respect our husbands. And there's a rub there because we grow familiar. And in familiarity, sometimes we lose that. But we're specifically told at the end of Ephesians 5 to respect, or is it Colossians, to respect our husbands. So don't change your personality. You're all joints, part of the body of Christ, working together, different gifts, different strengths, different personalities. But will you follow God's design? One more thing. What's the ultimate purpose of all of this? Titus 2, if you'll turn one more passage, and I promise I'll stop. In Titus 2, Paul is instructing Titus to disciple the people in the churches on Crete, to live lives that are consistent with the doctrine they say they believe, verse 1. And then he goes, he starts going through groups of people within the church and what that consistency of life will look like in the different populations of the church. And then he gets to the older women, what they should be like. And then they're there to teach the younger women, so the younger women have these, this life that is consistent. And then look at the end of verse 5. What's the reason For all of these things that young women need to develop and grow in, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now drop down to the end of verse 10. He gets to the end of each group of people, and then he makes this concluding statement that I believe applies to all of the groups that have been addressed. That they may adorn, oh, there's that adorning word, That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. What does that mean? We have a negative and a positive here. I need to live out God's design. That I see in Genesis, that I see here in Titus 2, that I see in 1 Peter 3. I need to live it out. But it's a much bigger reason than harmony in my home or harmony in my church. It's about the word of God. Because people around you are watching you and whether you live consistently or not with what you say you believe either adorns the gospel of God and makes it beautiful or it blasphemes it and it discredits it. So the negative is don't live in a way that blasphemes it. And the positive is make it beautiful by how I live according to God's design. I can make the gospel attractive and beautiful to those around me. So, are you a strong woman? And which kind of strong woman are you? God, we love you tonight. We thank you for your word. Use it in our hearts in your name. Amen.